Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our webinar today. Today we're going to be discussing common defenses. Uh, as part of our presentation, I'll be presenting, and Joseph Melchion as well from our office. Uh, let's just get started. Joe, please. Okay, so your location, your insured wants to know, do we have a defense to a particular case? Should we deny a claim? And which defense applies? Hopefully by the end of this webinar, you'll be able to answer some or all of those questions. Absolutely. Um, the remainder of questions and just a couple of answers here are in our book here in Chapter 5. Uh, feel free to look through it for additional information on the topics we're talking today. Um, we also have articles on lois-llc.com. Um, we also have our monthly webinars that you guys are currently joined. And we also have a monthly newsletter. You can send it out um, epearl.com slash bzlww. Okay, so if for some reason you would like to rewatch this webinar, you're so enthralled by our amazing presentation, or if you miss it or would like to recommend it to someone, you could always go to lois-llc.com webinar archive and watch any of the prior webinars. Absolutely. Now, as you have your questions, feel free to type them in throughout the uh, webinar. Uh, at the end, we'll have a chance to go over the questions and we'll uh, answer them as we can. If we don't get them immediately, we will get to them within a reasonable time. Now, when we're talking denials here, we first have to look at the electronic denial forms. Joe, what's that? Okay, so the Freud or Schroy 04 establishes the denial of the claim. It establishes mm -hmm. the legal and factual basis and lists the defenses. Um, and Joe, could you go into this 1810 rule? Absolutely. The Freud or Schroy has to be electronically filed by the carrier, okay. either 18 days from the date of the accident or 10 days from the date that the employer had knowledge of the accident. What's important to note there is the 10-day rule applies to the employer's knowledge, not the carrier's knowledge. Absolutely. And we also have to file an OC 400.5, which is our way of telling the court this is a serious denial. There's merit behind it, and it's not frivolous in nature. Um, when you're making a denial, you also want to make sure you file PH 16.2, and Joe will tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so the pre-hearing conference statement needs to be filed at least 10 days before the scheduled pre-hearing conference. It's a very important document. This document maintains our defenses, and it also identifies potential witnesses whose testimony may be crucial to the denial of the claim. Right, and, and it's important to us to make sure we have our witnesses listed and we don't have them precluded because if we don't do it by the 10 days, and let's even if it's on a ninth day, um, we have a scenario where we end up uh, – not being able to present a witness. And without that witness, we don't have any sort of testimony. And without that testimony, we have no case. So just kind of give you an idea of how important this is. Um, as we move forward to common defenses here, we're going to be talking about notice, uh, statute limitations, intoxication, intentional injuries, personal actions or injuries, recreational, lunchtime, and horseplay. Um, the non-employee defense was covered in detail last month, and if you'd like to see that webinar again, I refer you back to the website under Webinar Archives. Mm -hmm. um, going and coming defense will be discussed in great detail next week on June, next month, excuse me, June 20th, 2016. Okay, we don't want to steal the thunder, or we don't want to touch on that one, so we will not be touching nope. it all today. Let's get going. So, um, first we talk about notice. Um, under WCL Section 18, the claimant has 30 days to provide notice of an accident. Um, that notice can be written or constructive, but the idea here is the claimant should be reporting his accident within 30 days. Um, that's important so that the carrier has time to investigate, um, that the carrier has time to make sure they speak with the proper person that presumably might have received this notice. Um, and it also um, helps the carrier in not prejudicing them when they're actually denying the case. You can imagine a scenario where, you know, you, ha you run a warehouse 
And in the back dock, you have a surveillance video, but every 30 days it loops off and you don't have that evidence anymore. That's the situation we would say, judge, we've been prejudiced on this one and the claimant shouldn't be allowed to bring that case. That's a common scenario here. And we have a video to kind of touch hey, Greg, on the subject. One of our employees brought in this medical note saying that he was injured at work four months ago. I asked around and no one who was working that day remembers anyone being injured and no written report was made by the employee or anyone else. Can they file a workers' compensation claim? Okay, so Joe, can they file a workers' compensation claim in this type of example? Well, based on the facts as they were just presented, mm -hmm. no one had knowledge of the injury. There was no actual or constructive notice provided, um, and four months had went by. So that clearly brings the claimant outside that 30-day statutory period. So I feel like this is a ripe claim to be denied. Okay. Um, the next example we're going to talk about is the statute of limitations. Joe, could you uh, break that down for us? Sure. Statute of uh, limita limitations functions a lot like the notice requirement that you just described. It is right. governed by Workers' Compensation Law Section 28. Basically, it states that a claimant must formally uh, submit the claim to the Workers' Compensation Board within two years of the date of the accident. Mm -hmm. The calculus is a little different for occupational disease. Okay. For occupational disease, the claimant must submit that formal um notice to the board within two years from when the disabling aspect is recognized by the claimant based upon the work-related occupational disease or within two years from when that person should have known or knew of the disability based upon that, that injury. Right. And what you just described, the little issue of regarding the whether or not it's occupational or not, tends to be a big uh, thorn on a lot of side of the carriers, right? What claimants tend to do is say, well, uh, looks like I'm way past the two years now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and make it an occupational case. And then they hold off on getting any sort of treatment. And six months later, a doctor says, hey, guess what? That, that you know, injury that you had where you fell off the truck, or the case may be, is related to your uh, work. Then the claiming turned around and said, I didn't find out until six months later, so therefore it should be extended the amount of time I have to go ahead and file a claim. So that's something that we tend to look into when we're dealing with this type of thing. Uh, before you move on, I think it's important to note that that notice is formally effectuated when the claimant submits a Form C3 to the board file. Right, absolutely. So that kind of describes everything that's happened in the case and what they know about what's going on. Um, the next one is intoxication, and the the statute is very clear, and it continues to use the word solely, and, and that's actually very important because uh, this, the intoxication has to be the sole cause of the injury. Um, there's a presumption against compensability in Section 21.4. Um, this guy right here looks like he's having a very rough morning at this point. Right. Well, I'd like to state right off the bat that this is certainly not the type of behavior we engage in here at Lois LLC. Right, Steve? I'm just going to move on to this Absolutely. next slide move right on. now. Okay. So your employee's blood alcohol level was 0.4, which is four times the legal limit for driving. He was intoxicated when he cut himself. In this scenario, Joe, what do you think is going on? Well, based upon the presumption that you just described, yeah. uh, the presumption states that intoxication will is not solely the resulting factor in any work-related injury. Right. And if there's any contributing factor, um, it's going to be found compensable. So in this case, being that the claimant was drunk, yet he seemed to injure himself on an instrument, cut himself on a pair of scissors or a knife, whatever, mm -hmm. that knife would be considered to be a contributing factor. Therefore, intoxication wasn't solely the right. The reason and the claim would most likely be compensable, in my right. opinion. And we, as the defense attorneys, would obviously say, absolutely, that was the sole reason that the guy injured himself. So we'd argue the facts on your end and try to see if we can convince a judge um, with our hardest efforts there that it's based solely on the fact that he was intoxicated. Mm -hmm. um, how about intentional, Joe? How, how does that work? 
Okay. Uh, according to Workers' Compensation Law Section 10.1, um, intentional injuries basically are circumstances where an employee engages in self-harm, suicide, or the attempt thereof, or that claimant or employee is injured by an employer or co-employee. Now, in these facts, the, the injured employee must have been injured by the employer or the co-employee with a specific intent for that employee to be injured. Uh, and therefore, intentional is not necessarily a defense. It's more of a situation where the workers' compensation law doesn't apply. Because in those situations, the injured claimant mm. may have a right to a judgment in civil court. So talking about intentional, a scenario like this where this guy is being held up, we don't know what possible reasons because his shirt matches the background of this very terrible scene that's about that to happen. Um, would, would that classify? Would that count? Well, if we're looking at the picture, you're looking at the same picture I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. This guy in the tie certainly seems to have a specific intent to harm the guy in the blue shirt. I mean, mm-hmm. his eyebrows are very angry and that gun is pointed directly at his heart so right definitely i I certainly feel as if look at that look at that frown he just looks so angry there is specific intent here (laughs) all right and now we have here uh another video to kind of keep going along the same topic productivity is up since we modified the machines to remove all of the safety guards those guards were just slowing us down So it looks like both of these guys are in, in serious pain or crying. I don't know, sort of emotional discord here. Uh, and it, 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 maybe it's just me, but this injured guy looks a lot like Zach Galifianakis. What do you I, think? I, I think he does, and I think he's having one of his infamous hangovers. <laughs> wow. While the lady in the background, she hasn't stopped working. Have you realized this? She's I just see like, that. I'm, I'm not Well, talking. she's a good employee, of course. <laughs> so in this scenario, the guards were taken down and slowing everyone down. Joe, in this example, is removal of the safety device an intentional injury? Well, I get based upon the facts of this case, I feel as if it's pretty clear that the the manager removed the safety devices because he was happy that the workers were able to have an increased productivity. Right. When you look at it under those facts, it certainly seems that there was no specific intent to harm Zach Galifianakis. Right. It seems more so that the action was reckless or negligent. Or maybe he removed those guards because he was so upset of how bad Hangover 3 was. Absolutely. That was not impressive. Not, <laughs> totally not even a little bit. Um, so going on to the next topic here, um, we have personal uh, issues here. The first one I want to talk about is idiopathics, right? Um, those by their very nature are random. They just happen. Um, a claimant sitting there doing work gets up to get a um, bottle of water and is walking and, you know, just the knee hurts and it gets injured, right? So this is the proverbial, my knee gave out. No reason. Not no idea what happened or, you know, a situation where I'm in the middle of talking to you and I just kind of pass out and, you know, it's not clear why it happened, but what is clear beyond clear has nothing to do with work, right, Joe? Absolutely. Okay. And the other situation we have are assaults. Um, is it a customer slash work-related attacker? Uh, is it purely personal attack or reasons not arising out of the employment? You can see there's a couple of issues that are focused on, and, and I guess uh, the idea being a nexus. And you know, would you mind kind of uh, commenting more on that nexus, Joe? Sure. Uh, basically, if there's any nexus that can be drawn to the work relationship in any way, it mm-hmm. will result in compensability. Okay. I think this is best illustrated based upon the facts of the Manhattan Psychiatric Center case. Right. In brief, in that case, uh, a female worker who was a home, who's a health aide working at the hospital was mm-hmm. pregnant. Upon leaving the ladies room, based upon a symptom of her pregnancy, she mm-hmm. suddenly fell ill, 
passed out and fell to the floor. On her way to the floor, she hit her head on the wall, sustaining a concussion and spinal injuries. Uh, It's important to note that the Workers' Compensation Board found that this was a non-compensable injury because it was idiopathic. Mm -hmm. Uh, On appeal, a full board review reversed that and said there was a nexus to the work relationship because as she fell, Mm -hmm. she hit her head on the wall, which impeded her from hitting the ground. The wall was part of the work environment. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that nexus to the work relationship was satisfied and the claim found to be compensable. I think this is one of those cases where the nexus is really stretched, right? Like how much can we really – where can we find this nexus? This is structure. You fell on structure. Therefore, it's work-related. I think it shows how the board sometimes want to go that extra step to go ahead and find a case compensable. So that's why it's a little gray in terms of But I also think that that it's important to note that because of the amorphous nature of this evaluation, Mm -hmm. it still may be beneficial to deny the claim. Oh, absolutely. We're in the business. Deny, deny, deny. Absolutely. Now, um, here's another video to kind of continue to talk on the subject. Hey, I know you are the one who has been sleeping with my wife. Prepare to die. I have no idea what you are talking about. I am not sleeping with your wife. I saw her phone. You have been awling her all the time. Admit you are having an affair. Jerry, don't shoot him. All those phone calls were about work. We are not sleeping together. You are being crazy. And hence, he meets his demise. Right. Well, uh, first off, I'd like to say I don't think any one of the actors in this particular animation will be up for an Oscar anytime soon. But, but look at the girlfriend slash wife. She's definitely very upset. Like, I think there might have been something happening there. Mm-hmm. I don't it's know. unclear. So, Joe, in this type of scenario, the personal risk versus the risk of the employment, what we just heard, would that be something that is compensable? Well, I think initially on its face, it sure seems that way. Mm-hmm. Um, scorned lover comes into the place of business and mm-hmm. shoots someone that he thinks is having an affair with his wife. Mm-hmm. It seems like it emanates from a personal uh, vendetta, something that's not work-related. Okay. Now, but let me let me push back on you a little bit, right? Um, when I was reading the facts of that case, as right before the guy pulled the trigger, it looks like the wife is saying they're work-related conversations. Does that change your analysis at all? Well, certainly. I mean, if it can be determined that those phone calls were purely work-related, like we stated in the last example, mm-hmm. it appears as if there would be that nexus that we, dis- that we discussed. There is a nexus to the work relationship, and if there's any way to kind of confer that nexus, it seems like it's going to get the benefit of the doubt. Therefore, this claim would be considered to be, in some circumstances, a work-related claim, thus compensable. Can you imagine that testimony sitting there like, well, while we were talking at 2 in the morning, we were definitely talking about how to bag those groceries. Absolutely. <laughs> and paper, plastic, we're having work-related conversations. There's no right? doubt, Steve. There's no doubt. Now, um, the next defense we want to talk about are recreational. Um, this is voluntary participation in an off-duty activity not constituting part of the employee's work. Um, generally speaking, these tend not to be compensable, but, but and there's always a but, um, if you have certain situations, it might be considered compensable. Uh, if an employer requires the employee to participate, if the employer compensates the employee for participation, or the employer sponsors the activity, I think you can kind of get an idea based on this next video that we have popping up right now. <clears throat> popping up right now. Attention staff. The company picnic is tomorrow, and I expect all of you to be there and play on our soccer team. My goal is to win the company trophy. Boss, my daughter's recital is tomorrow. I can't make the picnic. The memo said the picnic was optional anyway. Winning is not optional to me. I expect you to play or I will remember it at review time. Okay, remember, I expect us to win. (laughs) 
So I just want to point out that this boss seems really interesting. I don't know if you noticed at first when he's uh, telling him about the picnic, he's using a bullhorn. Can you imagine just walking <laughs> around your office in a bullhorn the whole yeah. time? And then, like, the next day he's playing soccer and just destroys sure. this person, absolutely. Um, so, so, Joe, in this type of scenario, do, do we have here a recreational injury that's compensable? Well, I, I think, if I remember correctly, to when you were describing recreational activities, mm-hmm. the voluntary nature of the engagement in that activity is mm-hmm. a key component. Right. So in this case, based upon the facts that we just saw, it seems that although it was a recreational company picnic, mm-hmm. um, voluntary seemingly, the boss seemed to kind of remove that voluntary nature when he said that, oh, I really want you to go, I really want you to win. And if you don't, he insinuated there could be negative work-related consequences. So I don't think reasonably that mm-hmm. the, the injured party in this case felt that they were voluntarily attending. That I think that they felt that um, they did not have a choice. Right. It looks like that voluntary aspect, once it's removed, it really changed the scenario. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I've never been in a situation where someone's talking at me at a bullhorn and I felt like I had any sort of Absolutely. Option, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that would bring this claim into the realm of commensability. Absolutely. Um, how does the lunch break scenario work out, Joe? Okay, the lunch break scenario works out a lot like the recreational activity. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, uh, if you are off-duty, you mm-hmm. are off-premises, and you are going to re- get your lunch, mm-hmm. and you are injured, it is a non-compensable injury. Mm-hmm. But as we've stated, there are always exceptions to the rule, mm-hmm. and there are always nuances that have to be paid attention to. For instance, um, when you are at lunch or the claimant is at lunch, were they under the employer's direction? Were they expected to be working? I think... This is the proverbial example of a police officer who is on duty, mm-hmm. yet stopping by the local subway to get a sub. Mm-hmm. He's technically still on duty. Right. So therefore, if there was a, a situation that necessitated his attention, he'd have to go to it. If he right. was injured in that situation, that would be a work-related injury. Right, based on the fact that he was on the beat, correct? Absolutely. Okay, so um, what happened? You, you can take this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is another example. Uh, in this Benerson case, the uh, injured employee, the claimant, was a taxi repairman. He repaired Mm -hmm. some taxis at a garage on premises and some off premises. On this day, he was off premises and Mm -hmm. using his employer's car to get his lunch. Uh, In the process of going to to get that lunch, he was involved in a very serious car accident, sustained very serious injuries. Uh, The end result, the disposition of this case was that it was found to be a non-compensable lunch break uh, injury. Mm-hmm. Why? Because although he was driving his employer's car, mm-hmm. he wasn't doing it to provide a benefit to the employer. He wasn't on the job. He was simply doing it for the sole purpose of getting his lunch. Therefore, it was an uncompensable injury. Right. The, I think what they focus on is the benefit derived. Not like the guy was going around picking up his lunch and also picking up some sort of a person to give a ride to on a taxi. It's just simply, I'm going to get my lunch. It's nothing to do with the employer. Absolutely, right? Steve. You're dead on. Okay. So, the next one we want to get into is horseplay. Um, this refers to activities such as joking, playing that includes physical contact. And, you know, time and time again, we, we've defended a few of these. They're difficult. They're difficult to defend because they're very fact-specific, and they're determined by continuity of practice. Uh, what does that mean? Continuity of practice, uh, can we show that this is something that regularly happens at work? Um, if you have a bunch of construction workers, it's expected that they're going to be roughhousing a bit. Um, that's the type of scenario that, you know, we, we sit there and we say, well, Judge, we don't know. Maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's isolated. So, you know, taking that isolated concept, um, the courts have kind of fashioned a rule. Could you kind of talk about it a little bit, Joe? Sure. So to distinguish itself from the continuity of practice that would bring a, a horseplay-related injury into the realm of concept, uh, compensability, right. um, isolated incidents of, of foolery are kind of something that the courts have carved out 
to mm-hmm. establish non-compensable horse, horseplay um, injuries. Best, uh, I think, illustrated through this Gladwell case example. In this case, a bunch of guys who worked for a communications company were uh, going to their last work site to install some cable. They were excited it was a Friday. It was approaching 5 o'clock. This was their last site of the day. They decided to have a little bit of fun. Uh, are you ready, Steve, for what fun looks like? Okay, so they took turns uh, opening the back door of the van and hanging off. Hanging out, literally hanging out while the vehicle was moving. So lo and behold. I, I do different things for fun. So do I, Steve, <laughs> but to each his own. Uh, in this case, the claimant who was ultimately injured was hanging out, and he lost his balance and fell while the vehicle was moving and sustained very severe injuries. Uh, the disposition of this case was the mm-hmm. injury sustained was found to be a non-compensable work, uh, non-compensable injury because it was an isolated incident of foolery. Mm-hmm. This type of injury was not one that was uh, part of a continuity of practice. There was no way for the employer mm-hmm. to be able to reasonably foresee that this type of behavior would be engaged in by its employees. Therefore, it is considered an isolated incident of foolery, not part of uh, the continuity of practice, and therefore un, um, non-compensable form of injury. Okay. Um, that's actually the extent of our presentation now. At this point, we're going to move on to the question section, so I'm going to go ahead and see if we have any questions at the moment. All right. Um, Ron L. is asking, would a company picnic be considered a recreational activity? Joe, you want to take that one? I think we discussed this a little bit before. Much like the recreational activity and the illustrative example that we talked about before, Mm -hmm. a company picnic may, it depends, be considered a recreational activity. Um, But like I said, it depends. Would the employee be required mm-hmm. to attend? Are they being compensated? Is there work being done? Right. So I think it's a very fact-specific analysis. Absolutely. Generally, no, but but based upon what we've previously talked about, the facts would be important. Right. Does the employee feel pressured to go? Does the employee feel like he'll somehow um, suffer some sort of consequences if they don't? Again, they might not specifically say you have to go, but there are different ways of implying that you have to go. Right. All right. Let's see if we have another question here. Uh, Angela S. asks, a person at work did not get a promotion and leaves the boss's office and kicks wall and breaks her foot. Is that compensable? Joe, you're going to go two for two. That's one? <laughs> well, I think I'm going to give the safe answer and say this is certainly a case that we would deny. Mm-hmm. Uh, based upon the facts, it doesn't seem that the injury was work-related. Right. It seems to me a lot like the intentional injury that we discussed before, intentional self-harm, which would take right. it outside the realm of compensability. Right. So and the, and I think the intent when you're kicking a wall or doing something, it's not like you're sitting there, uh, there's nothing to do with work. You just got angry and you intended to hurt yourself. And that's certainly a defense we would go with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's see if we have anything else here. What if you're injured in the cafeteria on-premises uh, during an unpaid lunch is it compensable? Asked Lauren. Well, that would depend on a couple of circumstances, but ultimately I would say this falls into the situation you were talking about before. It's technically within the actual structure, so theoretically a judge will likely find it compensable. Mm-hmm. But the requirements, what happens when you're off duty for lunch? Can you be paged? Can someone call you to come back in? Are you back on call? I think it's really going to depend on the facts of the case, whether or not that's something that would be compensable. Um, we would certainly push back and say, well, you know what? We don't think it's compensable, and we would use the facts to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's about all the time we have here. For the remainder of our questions, we will certainly go ahead and answer them as quickly as we can. Um, just keep sending them in, and we'll uh, try our best to answer them as quickly as possible. And for next month, uh, we'll be talking about the going and coming defense 
Um, that's Monday, June 20th, 2016. Please put it on your calendar. Uh, the presenters will be Tashir Rasul and Emily Flass. And uh, I'd just like to say thank you all for joining. Thank you as well.